Hello, welcome to the Big 5D Podcast, where we have important conversations about the evolution of technology for small business success in Africa and the Middle East. Today, we will talk with Mohamed Al-Fayed, who's the co-founder and CEO of GrubTech. His company has built software to help ghost kitchens manage the incredible complexity of their businesses. As Mohammed explains in our conversation, ghost kitchens deal with multiple brands, multiple delivery partners, cuisine types, menus, and so on. GrubTech's bet is that these unique challenges call for unique software. So far, it seems to be working. GrubTech has raised a bit more than $5 million since it was founded in 2019, and it currently operates in more than seven countries with more on the way. We talk with Mo about the dynamics of the ghost kitchen and virtual restaurant businesses and how technology will help them evolve. We also get into some of the lessons he's learned as a startup co-founder. We hope you enjoyed the interview. Okay. Cool. Welcome to the show. Nice to have, uh, you know, nice to be invited into the show. And thanks for uh, giving us an opportunity to talk a little bit about GrubTech. It's our pleasure. So ghost kitchens, cloud kitchens, dark kitchens, I've heard all three terms, but I guess ghost kitchens, or yeah, I guess... I guess ghost kitchen seems to be the most uh, commonly used, but it's an interesting phenomenon. And it seems to be catching on uh, quite a bit in the, particularly in the UAE and, and Saudi and, and the region. Uh, why yeah. do you think that is? Why do you think it's uh, caught on the way it has? Look, the region enjoys uh, some interesting statistics when it comes down to online food. We have some of the world's highest order per capita. Um, take a country like Kuwait. I think the order per capita there is almost five per person. So that's five orders a day per human living in Kuwait. Um, so we've always been on the forefront of um, online food, primarily because of convenience and obviously optionality. And, and um, we drive a lot of technological you know, innovation from that perspective in that sector. So cloud kitchens uh, almost have been seeded here, you know, or at least fortified here in this part of the world, and they continue to grow very rapidly. Um, so that's contributed to, you know, the root sectors, I guess, you know, proliferation of cloud kitchens in our part of the world. Okay. And, uh... You know, backing up a little, just to, so everyone's clear, a cloud kitchen is basically, or a ghost kitchen is basically a kitchen that is not uh, associated with like a storefront restaurant, but it serves, purely serves an online trade. I think most people, I think at this point, understand that definition. And your company, just to be clear, is not a cloud kitchen itself. It's a, you provide enabling software for companies. That's, That's correct? correct. Okay, That's explain correct. that just a little bit more. So, you know, we, we saw cloud kitchens about, you know, three years ago starting to take root in different parts of the world. You've got food aggregators like Deliveroo uh, who launched Deliveroo Editions, which was a cloud kitchen arm of their food aggregator. And um, a lot of the pilot and or heavy investments were happening in this part of the world. And then we had local startups um, like Icon and Katopia and others, uh, One Kitchen, all started to, you know, bring their own variations or their own formula to it. And our key takeaway from studying the space was there was no out-of-the-box or native-built uh, technology to power this operation. Single brand, single location works fine. Single brand, multiple locations works fine. But when you jam in one location, multiple brands, the existing technology providers really have a hard time with that. So a lot of these cloud kitchens built their own technology or kind of customized what was already out there. 
But to be quite honest with you, it was rickety. It was uh, not very efficient, um, largely built on a lot of legacy technology. So we saw that as a, an opportunity as white space. It, when we started the company, it was still 2019. So the pandemic was, was, was obviously not with us. And we had made a big bet that cloud kitchens are going to be a driving force for how we consume food. And as these operators continue to expand geographically and their business models, um, they would need a tech enabler. Um, so we, we, we built a purpose-built end-to-end solution to, you know, power a cloud kitchen from, you know, from day zero uh, all the way until their full production and, and, and their output. Okay. So what is, um, from a designing of software perspective, what are the unique challenges for building a the software you built for cloud kitchens in terms of the operation of the business? What are they, what are, as opposed to just a regular old restaurant, what are the unique challenges? So first and foremost, you've got multiple brands sitting in one location. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is these multiple brands also sit across multiple food aggregators, right? So typically like in Dubai, for example, or in the UAE, we've got Talabat, we've got Zomato, we've got Kareem, we've got Deliveroo. Um, we now have Noon. You've got at least four to five food aggregators that each one of these brands needs to speak to. So if you think about one location that typically has, let's call it 20 brands sitting across five food aggregators you're talking at almost a hundred menus that need to be managed and a hundred orders um streams that need to be ingested and then obviously when you look inside the operations you've got you know anywhere between 10 to 15 stations and these stations can be you know either at appliance level so that you have a, a station for grilling a station for frying a station for desserts or a station for drinks or each brand sits or a collection of brands sits on that one station and you you have to be able to take that order send it to the right kitchen but in in addition to doing so, you also need to send it to the right station. So there's a lot of logic um, that that goes into the order management and routing of, of, of that software. And then obviously menu structures, and this was kind of new to me, and none of my team members are from the food industry. We all come from very different backgrounds. You know, looking at a menu, you would think, ah, oh, that's a simple thing, right? I mean, you know, pepperoni pizza, margarita pizza, and so on and so on. But, you know, the clincher was really the modifiers, right? I want extra cheese. I don't want onions. I want extra olives. So you start to get into permutations of variations across each and every dish that we've seen menus in excess of 500 line items, you know, but it's only actually like seven to 10 recipes, but the variations of them are endless. So, um, and it's, it was, it was quite eye opening for us. And, and um, to be quite honest with you, you know, our first stab at it, we, we failed miserably, uh, primarily because of this whole recipe and modifier story. And it took a couple of tries and a lot of research and customer feedback to, to perfect it. And, you know, proud to say that we got it right. You know, it took some time, but we got okay. it right. So, um, you raised some money in March. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you've, you've got some investor interest, you've got some, uh, some backing to, to, you know, build out the platform, but ultimately who is your customer? It may seem like a silly question, but, um, you know, is it the independent restaurant that wants to, um, you know, get into this, enter the cloud kitchen space? Is it a big food aggregator? Is it a big cloud kitchen company that needs underlying software? all the above kind of talk about who your ideal customers set in honestly all of the above and and what we're starting to see when you know when we when we started this journey is there's a slow blending 
of the business mm -hmm. model. Uh, and I'll give you a flavor of that. So we on, on the big boy stuff, we've got, you know, cloud kitchens like Icon that have 20 plus kitchens or 24 kitchens plus over multiple countries that use our software. We have Delivery Heroes Talabat, uh, which is their local food aggregator in the in the GCC using our software. We've got large chains like um, Sushi Art or Kebabji or Tortilla or Joga using our software. And we've got local mom and pop, you know, hero brands that, you know, a, a small burger shop and, and on, on, on the side street also using our software. And I, and I tell you, the blending occurred when, you know, the pandemic and the restrictions were all the restaurateurs go, well, listen, it, it's not going to be viable for me to have one brand cooked out of my kitchen anymore. And even though I own a store and it's the sign on the door says Moe's Burger, I have a fryer, a grill, a, a, you know, a, a, a chopping station, and I have supply chain and I have chefs that are just sitting there idle because dine-in is closed or, you know, drive through is closed. And so how do I, you know, make more money to support my operation and to keep myself alive? And they start say, well, let me create another brand. And instead of calling it Moe's Burger, I'm going to call it Moe's Hot Dogs, right? And I'm using the same supply chain and da, 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 da. And it's coming out of the same box. And we've dubbed that term micro cloud kitchens, which is basically the incumbent restaurateurs, you know, looking for ways to survive and to thrive in, the, in these times, creating their virtual brand concepts out of the same location and pushing that out. And a lot of our clients have you know, an average of five brands out of each of their locations. And some clients have nine brands out of what was a traditionally only, you know, one brand, one location footprint. So they are also- This there. was innovation out of necessity during the pandemic. 100%, it was, a you know, they had to, you know, be very creative to survive. And as, as word got out that we were unlocking that complexity and that our software makes it as simple as a couple of clicks to do so you know we we just i mean it was a cascade of customers that were approaching us on a daily basis and, and still do uh to help out with that so i guess you know there is no such a thing as this is a dedicated cloud kitchen and this is a dedicated restaurant anymore the, the lines have totally been blurred okay so typical rest not a typical restaurant but many restaurants have just dedicated their unused capacity to creating additional like virtual brands within their existing kitchen. Are they also, I suppose, leasing that capacity out to other? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Some have yeah. almost inherently became landlords where, you know, they rented to another restaurant 10 meters, 10 for 15 meters in the back of their restaurant to flip their burgers or, you know, to put their pizza oven and throw in some dough um, to just uh, as ways to earn extra income or drive sales per square foot. Um, and mm -hmm. we've seen a few examples of that in our backyard. So the sort of an underlying related, very related topic to cloud kitchens is the idea, because a cloud kitchen can serve a brand that has physical uh, restaurants as well as, uh, you know, and has delivery capacity, which they may use a cloud kitchen for, right? But there's also purely virtual restaurants, I think you've already alluded to. Um, that's an interesting idea unto itself, sort of, can I, could you talk about a little, what's the, what are the economics or uh, sort of success factors of a purely virtual restaurant brand where there's no physical, never has been a physical location for the business and it's strictly, um, you know, 
pizzas and burgers that you you never you never see the storefront you never see a sign yeah but it exists and how do you make that kind of restaurant work i'm just i find that fascinating yeah i mean look we we at the at the beginning of the pandemic we saw an explosion of these virtual brands i mean people were just simply creating a logo throwing up a banner on a food aggregator and having five to seven recipes and off they were a brand right um and i think at the beginning it was marginally successful you know and people saw it as a well another burger joint and i can't leave my house i don't know if it's a real store or not and, you know there's no mark on it well because you're seeing it like in a food aggregator or the, something like that so you when in a pandemic situation you don't know you don't know if that's a real I mean, you don't know yeah, yeah. you don't know if it's a you know i've never eaten there before and there's no mark on the on the brand that says i'm a virtual only brand right but what we started to see was a lot of crowding uh, particularly about the uh, around the staples like i mean everybody was coming up with the burger brand Everybody was coming up with the fried chicken brands. Everybody was coming up with the pizza brands. And the ones we saw win were the ones who stuck to the DNA of what good food is. So quality for money, speed and delivery, and, 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 and consistency. So, you know, being able to create that burger time and time again. Those are the ones who, who, who've managed to survive the shakeout of the virtual brands. Um, the elements still stand, though. I mean, you know, brand equity... And, and word of mouth, good reviews on food aggregators, being able to keep the customers happy is, is you know, all the basic formulas or basic ingredients in a formula for a successful brand still holds true for a virtual brand as well. Um, mm -hmm. Another key success factor that we saw with virtual brands are the guys who's, who did them with a view that they'll just put them into one or two stores, i.e. just serve like 10 or 15 kilometers, didn't do so well. Guys who had big physical fleets, like 50 plus stores, and were able to deploy that virtual brand over a wider area of coverage, were able to justify, you know, the effort and, and the, the investment that went into creating a, a virtual brand. So um, that requires using multiple ghost kitchens, correct? Multiple ghost kitchens or largely the incumbents who had 50 stores already. Right. I've got 50 stores of Moe's right, burgers. Right. I can drop Moe's hot dogs on all of the 50 versus just I have one store. I'll just create another brand onto that store. Those guys typically struggled because, again, they were quite limited in the delivery reach. Um, and then, you know, again, I did not navel gazing here with you and say, you're starting to see a lot of celebrities create their own virtual brands, right? I mean, in the last, I would say, five or six days, George Lopez uh, out of the U.S. has a tacos brand now. Right. And that's coming out through virtual uh, virtual kitchens or ghost kitchens. Right. And that's not really a store. You, you've got YouTubers who are coming up with burger concepts, literally breaking the Internet and selling, you know, millions of burgers in, in, in a week. Um, so the lines are constantly being redrawn, you know, and, and what worked yesterday definitely yeah. will not work tomorrow. So George Lopez aside, and, uh, but it's interesting maybe that there's kind of an influencer play here that, uh, you know, because the, the barrier to entry is let's quite a bit lower. Very much. Still, yeah. But that can, can that be a little bit of fool's gold? You just indicated that there's, you know, there are, it's not like it's easy to do. A no, no. It's just, you know, it's, you know, you don't have to have that sort of in-person service component. There's a lot lower upfront costs. But I've heard the argument that over time, you do have to spend more on marketing and there's more, um, you know, there are some costs that you may not consider upfront in a virtual brand, because even though you don't have that physical storefront, that physical storefront was also, pandemic aside, a form of advertising True. and marketing for yeah. 
business. So you, absent that, your only marketing is that logo on the food aggregator or whatever you do through digital marketing or you know through whatever influencer campaign, whatever method you use. There's costs associated with that that may be higher than just getting word of mouth and drive through yeah, and sort of you know drive by type business. Do, do you have a sense of you know of that and you know sort of the un unseen challenges yeah i mean doing a virtual brand. i think you're spot on man you you have to you definitely need to up your digital marketing game since you're only a digital brand right uh and you've got to attract and, and your, your customers only through digital mediums uh so i would say the the spend would probably be a you know a premium to a brick and mortar um you've also you know starting out you have a tremendous amount of wastage right i mean you're gonna buy burger buns and burger patties and all the rest of the stuff and just sit there and wait and hope that you're gonna get 50 orders today and if you don't then the garbage it goes and you start all over again the next day uh and until you build the momentum you know you start. the third thing is you're kind of at the mercy of food aggregators right when you go on to a deliveroo or an uber eats and you type burger if you're one of the lucky ones that are ranking on the first you know scroll or two you'll do well if you're buried under you know 300 scrolls you're cooked man you know and and doing business with the food so, aggregator pun intended, no yeah. pun intended <laughs> doing business with the food aggregator well, it's, it's like yeah no no it's it's sort of a the the modern version of you know the best place to hide a body is on the second page of a google search result right? right so um <laughs> that's right okay yeah. So you said there was a shakeout. Um, was that sort of when was that happened sort of last year or? Yeah, I'd say end of year? last year, end of last year, you're mm -hmm. starting to see a lot of these virtual brands that were created in the beginning of 2020, you know, starting to fade out or fold um, and just stopped existing, really. Um, and then you've seen some amazing virtual brands actually make the hop from virtual to physical so their 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 restaurateurs created this virtual brand did supremely well in 2020 and now they're like well it needs to live in the real world now right so where do i put a store uh, and let's create a concept around it let's look a uh, look and feel and, and, and all the rest so interestingly enough we born in digital but now in physical and vice versa right Interesting. It's sort of like Amazon putting launching physical stores. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. It's, look, yeah, yeah. There's a no, lot of parallels. Right. Right. A lot of parallels between mm -hmm. retail and food, you know, and e-commerce and food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. A um, couple things on that. So, so just what do you think is sort of the sustainable path for virtual restaurants? Do you think it's a virtual physical hybrid, like you just alluded to? Is there a place for purely virtual brands? Um, you know, I think you've indicated some of the success factors, like having a bit of scale, right? Yeah. Um, but kind of how do you see that going forward? And, and you must think about that because it's germane to your business. Yeah, look, I, I, we, we, we believe in the, in the story and we think virtual brands are going to be around for a really long time. Good ones, you know, ones that follow that typical age-old formula of, you know, good quality, speed and delivery and, and value for money and consistency. So we, we, we definitely see that as an emerging and, 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 and long-term trend. Um, and we see the digital, right? The blending of the physical and the digital. And, and the, and the digital. Cloud kitchens will continue to grow. I mean, they're, they're, when done right, they 
are a cost-effective way of food manufacture and delivery. Uh, food aggregators, obviously, you know, here to stay. That's just consumer behavior that's now permanently changed. Uh, and and as we get better and better with a lot, there's an abundance of data, right? Now you know what you like for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, what you're allergic to, what if you're a vegetarian, if you're a meat lover, um, what your order time preferences, and as this data starts to get synthesized, you'll start to see personalization at scale, right? Portion, okay. you'll start to see portion control, you'll start to see flavor control, and so on and so on. That is possibly even tied to your IoT and your wearable device. And so you burned 800 calories in the gym to this morning, you're good for a burger and lunch. You did it, guess what? That's a hell of a round at the gym. Yeah, <laughs> you're eating a lettuce tonight because that's as far as you go, yeah. <laughs> you know? So yeah, yeah. You, you'll start to see. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So that, that gets into some of the, um, the technology behind this. So, um, you know, I can see a lot of machine learning, AI-driven personalization, Correct. Uh, you know, to the point where, yeah, you're, you're almost where your biometrics dictate your food choices and you can almost like even set that up to, to happen automatically, yeah. uh, perhaps. Um, could you talk about where, where, just from a sort of technological evolution standpoint, where you want to take this business? Is it in that direction? Could you talk a bit? Yeah. yeah, look, I mean, we're working on a couple of, uh, I mean, other than the bread and butter of the end-to-end -end operation from the time a menu is created to an order is generated in the in-kitchen operation and out the door to our driver, I think we've got that right. down pat and, and you know, we, we've, we've enjoyed wild success with that over the last, you know, year or so of operations. We're now looking at what is beyond that. So some of the things that we're working on are cubby systems where, you know, drivers can just drop the food in a cubby. You will walk over, put in a pin code or scan a QR code, grab your food and go. Really helpful for, you know, apartment buildings or food halls and, and, and food courts and stuff like that. We're also studying the IoT or the Android, uh, sorry, the, the wearable story and seeing how hyper-personalization at scale will plan out uh, and, and seeing where we can plant a flag in that in that world. Um, other places that we're really, you know, investing a lot of our time and efforts into is um, matchmaking. So as you rightfully said, not every restaurant is running at full capacity. Actually, I think there was a study that said most restaurants run at around 34% capacity. So how do we marry brands that want expansion without CapEx to dormant capacity and do so, you know, with science rather than just arbitrary. So I know this district really could do with three Mexican cuisine brands. These guys are breakfast only. Can I get a breakfast only Mexican cuisine to match to those three stores? And that way, you know, you create success for both sides of the marketplace. Uh, and you use a lot of machine learning to do so, right? If you're a Mexican brand, then you can assume you have a supply chain of guacamole, cheddar cheese, tomatoes, onions, da 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 da. Okay, this brand also requires these same ingredients, so the restaurateur doesn't need to expand his appliance or expand his supply chain requirements to adopt that brand. And we're spending a lot of time, you know breaking that problem down and we're quite confident that we've found a solution and you know that's something that we will see before the end of this year that's really interesting because i've often heard you, the 30 percent capacity figure is interesting because i've often heard you, i don't know, if, you know the numbers kind of vary but you hear if, if a business for restaurant business isn't full all the time it's probably failing yeah right and uh 
so you could actually help sort of cut down on the failure rate yeah. through this, yeah. you know, uh, credible efficiency of like capacity utilization. Uh, but it's incredibly complex, as you sort of stated at the beginning with this, you know, the, the menu and then the variability on the menu. And then if you're cloud kitchen with, you know, 10 different brands and, you know, getting the right food to the right people at the right time. Um, Incredible amount of complexity, but if that complexity can be mastered, which is what you're doing, uh, the idea that um, you know every kitchen is operating at op- I wouldn't say full, but optimal capacity, right? Yeah, you know, I don't know if that means more restaurants, but it certainly means fewer unsuccessful ones, probably. Yeah, uh, makes me think. How have you thought about it, how your technology can help address food waste? I mean, uh, it sort of goes hand in hand, doesn't it? Better capacity utilization, less wasted food. I mean, if you, That's, I don't know if you thought about that. We did. I mean, look, honestly, there's a lot of uh, altruistic current in what we do. Um, you know, I, when we started the company and obviously the pandemic happened, a lot of the customers that originally approached us simply couldn't bear the cost of our software uh, during these difficult times and unpredictable times. And, you know, I'm not boasting when we say we just take it for free and when things turn around for you, you can start paying us. Uh, and the drive behind something like that was we wanted to make an impact. We wanted to make a, we, we, we didn't get into this business to, you know, take advantage of people or tax an already difficult scenario for, for the restaurateurs. And, and off of that, you know, altruistic current, you know, food wastage and, and, and you know, minimizing the impact on, on, on the environment and, and, you know, looking at alternate protein methods, et cetera, et cetera, have all been things that we put on the whiteboard. And to answer, a, you know, the question in a short form and say, does our solution reduce food wastage? Of course, because we get to give you the opportunity to use the same ingredient across multiple recipes, multiple cuisines, so you don't have to put it in the garbage, you know, and, and hopefully that, you know, creates a ripple effect across multiple, you know, facets. Right. So another thing that's uh, I find kind of interesting is this uh, question of what is the, you know, in fairness, you the ghost kitchen concept, cloud kitchen concept goes way pre-pandemic. I think what did Travis Kalanick, I forgot what year he launched, you know, cloud kitchens, but it was it's a few years before the pandemic. I don't know if someone invented it before him. I don't quite know the history quite, but it's a few years old. So so the concept was there. The pandemic shined a light on it, probably accelerated its development. Um, what is the post-pandemic, is there a post-pandemic letdown on food delivery on sort of the idea of home versus, talk about that, talk about how you think about the post-pandemic world looks for this industry. Yeah, I mean, look, to be honest with you, this was debated profusively um, by our investors, by by VCs that we pitched to. And, you know, my, my, my response was always the same. I look, Look at online food penetration as a sector and you would see, you know, if you take a global outlook on it, it's still single digits and some would put it as low as four to five. Some will put it as high as seven to eight, but it's still single digits. Now, if you look at how we consume everything else in our life, right, whether it's media through Netflix or Apple TV or whatever the case may be, even down to our groceries or our our office needs, you have Amazon. So you've got you've got 
you know, high double digit penetrations in the 30s and 40s on how we consume our clothes, our commodities, et cetera, et cetera. But something as reoccurring as food, as in I need three meals a day, is still happening at three or single digits. What do you think is going to happen? It's going to catch up, right? I mean, we live on our phones and every we press a button and things just appear. So that that, that is not going anywhere. And that consumer behavior obviously was catalyzed by the pandemic and it will just continue to move forward. And as the cost structure of online food becomes cheaper and cheaper, uh, you're already starting to see the impact, right? Uh, new apartment buildings are being built with much smaller kitchens because cooking is now a hobby, not a necessity. I can consume food at a cheaper price than having to go to the grocery store, buy all its components, spend an hour or two putting it together. I'll get the same output and a cheaper price, right? Um, so that's here to stay. We've got a lot of headroom to go. The pandemic just helped us accelerate, but it, it, it definitely is not going to flatten out okay. or plateau. Okay, okay, fair enough. So uh, I want to talk about the food aggregators. They're, they're, they can be controversial. I mean, there's, there's um, you know, I don't know what, I, I read about, you know, the, the sort of the, the tension between the aggregators and the restaurants over fees and, who owns the customer and, and so how do you think that's going to evolve and how is your relate how does the food kitchen or the ghost kitchen relationship with the food aggregators evolve yeah i mean look do it, they get into each other's businesses for example lines are getting blurry and i think you know yeah, yeah. people people say well food aggregators are bad because they're taxing my business but i like to always counter the argument that well if we didn't have food aggregators you wouldn't have a digital business right and and, and if you didn't have a digital business you could potentially be given up about 30 percent or 40 percent of your top line today and food aggregators also gave birth to the cloud kitchens because cloud kitchens only do delivery right and it's not through phone orders uh so they're, they're not all bad evil organizations and i think what's happening here is that the the industry is finding an equilibrium where both sides of, of defense have to you know coexist what makes sense by way of commission uh rates and what against what services um who owns the customer and 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 you know draw that point clearly so that everybody on both sides of the table is actually making some money because you know to be honest with you when restaurateurs you know cry wolf on, on the food aggregator saying i'm not making money because of them if you've looked at the pnl of these food aggregators they're not making any money either you know no so it looks like nobody's no. making money in this game right and and and, it, and i think yeah which makes you wonder what where does it go is it i mean there's been consolidation already you know globally in the food aggregate yeah space. so i but, imagine there'll be more they will yeah. and and i think again as as, as price performance indexes come down and, and they get we get better sharper smarter and use technology to drive this business we will get to that happy you know space it took amazon 19 years to, to turn a profit right i mean you know sending you a box of paper clips was a very expensive ordeal for Amazon, <laughs> but it didn't stop yeah, them from still doing is. it, right? Yeah. yeah, but they made it, yeah, they have obviously created incredible efficiency and also the sort of, um, you know, the, the amount of scale creates that incredible valuation, which, you know, uh, they almost don't need to make money. <laughs> they, uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. So I think I think that's where at the nascent stage of the sector and, and, and we're going to see a lot of evolution. And I think the evolution is going to be healthy for both parties, the food aggregators as well as the restaurant and cloud kitchen community. Yeah. Okay. Now, I've been reading, this is a little bit of an, well, not really an aside, but I'm not sure, uh, just curious about it. I've been, read an article about a, I think it was in the, 
Indonesia, and I forgot that now I forgot the name of the company, but they doing ghost kitchens and they're aggregating home kitchens as part of their ghost kitchen strategy. Have you, and I think I've seen something about this in Saudi. I forgot. I should have written the names down before I spoke, (laughs) but in part of my research, I came across this and I'm wondering if you've looked at this and what, what the pros and cons of this are and if this is part, will be part of a significant part of the ghost kitchen. Uh, It's a, it's, it's a tricky one because we've seen it. We've heard of it. We've seen multiple people try to unlock that dormant capacity. Right. So I have a kitchen in my house. I'm not at home and it's it's just sitting there. Right. It's like, you know, the couch for Airbnb. How do I, you know, extract more or car for Uber, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, but with food, it's a little tricky because there's licensing requirements, there's food uh, health safety requirements, there's yeah. there's hygiene factors. So, you know, the, the tricky part is when you start to play in people's homes by way of cooking and food prep, there's a lot of concern about the hygiene and there's a lot of concern about, you know, the regulation around unlocking that. So. I, I think it's a still a little consistency. Early. I would think would be a huge, huge one as well. Huge one. I think it's early. I think what you're seeing, what we are really excited about, and, and, and have numerous customers, um, is the unlocking of commercial kitchens as dormant capacity. So we've got a lot of hotel operators that have leased out their hotel kitchens to some of our clients, and we power a lot of hotels uh, in the region off of of that space. We're starting to see universities open up their kitchens because they're again you know, large commercial kitchens. We've seen now stadiums opening up their kitchens into delivery only kitchens for the radius of kitchens. So we're seeing a lot of commercial kitchen capacity coming into this multi-brand cloud kitchen story. But I think it's a little ways away from home kitchens coming into the game. Yeah, I was skeptical about it, but I did read that it's it's being experimented yeah. with. And I, th- I know that the, uh, again, I'm sorry, I don't have it at the it's tip okay. of my tongue, but the company and in Indonesia, I mean, they had a process for evaluating the kitchens and vetting them, and and they would actually install their own equipment in some of the in the kitchens to bring them up to a certain, you know, equal standard of. of but again, you know, uh, I was wondering, how do you, uh, you know, how do you achieve some scale here yeah. uh, if you're just doing all that for each individual kitchen? It seems almost easier to go into a bigger commercial kitchen it does. and do it that way. It does. But, but anyway, it, it was an interesting idea. Anyway, anyhow. Um, just a couple of quick things before we wrap up. Uh, is this your, I should know this, is this your first startup or did have you? It's so I've spent the last uh, 20 plus years in, in large uh, retail corporations like Macy's and Ross stores in the U.S. Yeah, I didn't and see others. that in your LinkedIn, I wasn't sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in those organizations, I was an intrapreneur. So in my last organization where I spent 12 years, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to work for a CEO and a, and a chairman that were, quite fans or champions of innovation and you know my last five years i set up a, a digital division in that company where it grew to over 100 million dollars and 800 people uh funded by the corporation itself or the company that i worked for but almost uh, an independent initiative by myself and obviously you know uh, as a standalone company so theoretically or technically not my first startup um but my first on my own startup. So, you know, one that I had to go beg for money to get started. Let's put it that way. Yeah, 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 yeah. First one you had to raise raise some some green for. Yes, yeah. sir. So the reason I ask that is just um, I kind of always like to close with sort of, a, uh, 
you know, just some startup life type questions. And, uh, you know, the th thing you wish you knew more about uh, before you started the business in terms of what it would take? Look, it's uh, it's an interesting story. I mean, you know, the startup life and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little grayer than than most founders who who jump into the, their first startup. So um, I think I'm well prepared from a corporate background and experience, and have the governance and the you know the 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 mature outlook on how this should be done. So I, I feel fairly confident in that. But the one thing that always you know surprises me in the last two years was having to make decisions. Uh, with little to no data points and you're almost you know falling back on your intuition and gut um, as you you know make left and right decisions and you pivot every time you feel like you you're not quite there and having spent most of my adult life and corporate life you always have reams of spreadsheets that can guide your your future outlooks right I mean you know what you've done the last 10 years and you can easily predict what you'll do tomorrow uh, in startup world, particularly in highly innovative uh, sectors, you're flying off the seat of your pants and, and you know, you just have to trust your decision. Uh, hopefully your decision is right. And if it's not, you need to be able to see that real quick and pivot before you sink the company. Um, and, and that, don't be stubborn. Don't be stubborn and, and no one to fold, yeah. you know, and that was yeah. kind of hard for me to do. And um, trusting instinct and intuition with, with, with the uncertainty was, was new, um, continue to try to master it. But I'll tell you, that's, that's the one thing I wish I, I knew coming in because it would have, okay. it would have helped in the early days. Okay. Last, last question, which is, uh, which I probably should have asked before the no worries. startup life question is geographic expansion. Are you going to be a regional player? Or are you going to be an international player? What's the, what's the house and how do you look at other markets? Yeah, no. So we, we are fortunate enough to be in, in over seven countries at the moment. So we've got customers in Singapore, Pakistan. We're talking to customers in Malaysia, Philippines. Uh, we're obviously at the UAE and Saudi Arabia uh, and Jordan and Egypt. Uh, um, we have discussions on with Cloud Kitchens in Amsterdam, UK, and Paris, uh, and Canada. Uh, and actually, I think we're either signed or about to sign our first one in the US. So the short answer nice. is we kind of went everywhere. And it wasn't by design, to be quite honest and, and, and transparent. It is a direct result of the explosion of Cloud Kitchens worldwide and the anemic offering when it comes down to technology enablement. So we, we've been very fortunate that all of this business was reverse increase and inbound uh, leads. Uh, as far as geographical focus, we, we, we definitely feel that APAC is a strong region uh, by way of online food penetration, growth, uh, sheer size. Uh, so we're going to be making some significant investments in the likes of Singapore, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, and South Korea, uh, at least over the next uh, three to four months. Okay, what about the African continent? How do you evaluate? Well, uh, you know, we just got contacted by by um, by a cloud kitchen operator in South Africa. So we're in discussions. It's a little early. Um, online food penetration there remains relatively low, so it has a lot of room to grow. And we always encourage the, the restaurateurs and or the entrepreneurs to take advantage of this opportunity and, and build out their cloud kitchen initiatives. And if they need software, by all means, reach out to us. We, that's the easiest part for us to, to, to solve for you. Great. Okay, we'll end it there. It's been a great conversation. Really appreciate your time. Thank you and, so much uh, for the opportunity.
helping us learn about cloud, ghost kitchens, cloud kitchens, dark kitchens, whatever, whatever term you prefer. Well, of course. Anyway, Mohammed, thanks again. I appreciate it. You have yourself a wonderful day. You too. Thank you.